from what I've, you know, been in the game now, like starting Can off, I just say... Can I just say I love that Nord calls design the game. Yeah. I, you know, can we do that more often? I'm built for this game. Welcome to the Zero to Design podcast, where four designers, Wana, Saki, Noor, and DJ, that's me, talk about design stuff. In this episode, we'll chat about what makes a designer extraordinary. And yes, we mean beyond wearing a unicorn hat. And for today's design inspiration, we'll be talking about a tool that has brought the whiteboard online, Miro. Let's do this. When I went to a design conference a couple of years ago in Brighton, um, I was talking to this product manager about designers. And he was basically saying that The biggest reason he doesn't find great designers is because the ones that he's worked with, they just expect tasks to be given to them and then just purely like do kind of the UX or UI elements Mm. of it and then hand it over to, to the engineers. And so he's found it difficult because, you know, he thought either are all designers this way or is that... You know, has he not just come across like great designers who actually care about the product and do a little bit more than just kind of the pure craft of design on specific tasks? So that got me thinking when we were talking about this, like what actually makes an extraordinary designer? Like what 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 makes a designer stand out in the crowd uh, and what makes them amazing at their job? Interesting. <laughs> it's funny you say that because I was talking to someone not long ago and they mentioned this whole concept of wireframe monkeys and people who just do what's given to them without thinking or, you know, it's kind of like a a, a job and they approach it like a mm. job um, as opposed to a passion or a real interest. Yeah, but I also think it goes beyond passion, right? Because I think... I think the role of the designer has evolved over the last, I don't know, years. And so I think you could be passionate about, create, passionate about creating wireframes, for example. But I think as, as a designer these days, you're expected to do a lot more than just uh, like what you called a wireframe monkey. Or, um, <laughs> in the sense that like, I mean, you could be super passionate about that, but I think your impact as a designer is quite low if that's the only thing that you kind of focus on. And these days, I, I think we are somewhat responsible as designers to, uh, to care about product and to incorporate product thinking, uh, end-to-end product thinking into our process and into our job roles. And by that, I mean, you know, actually caring about everything that has to do with designing a product, not just a specific feature or, um, you know, handing it over, but also like what customers feel about your product. Like what, uh, you know, are these the right features to build? Are they being tested? Are the customers actually getting what you designed into their fingertips or is it getting mangled in the, in the development stage? Like all of these things kind of, I don't know if it's deemed like going outside of your, you know, immediate role, but I think in my head, that's made the designers that I've worked with stand out, I think. And if they do all those things, they should be paid very well. <laughs> exactly. I think that's a really good point you made about impact, Wana. Um, because I think if you're happy to as a designer, you can just do the visual element of it and that's fine. But I think in today's world, we're, you know, we're part of interdisciplinary teams. And I think just in the way that we want people to be educated about design, I think we should also strive to be educated about different parts of the business. So whether it be understanding tech feasibility, whether it be understanding business strategy, 
those are really important things to have as a designer in in this day and age because you will yeah. end up being able to give more and have a bigger impact on the products that you build because we you know a lot of times we talk about things that you know design can be very subjective and therefore when we're talking about experiences that can be quite a subjective topic if you can combine that with you know knowledge of metrics or understanding what strategy your business has that can be a very powerful thing yeah that's i definitely agree with that and i think that's why you know diversity and transferable skills when you go into design not necessarily having to have had design experience you can still add a lot of value on that front because especially speaking for myself really um you know i'm new to the game but I don't feel like I'm that new to the game because I have transferable skills and stuff that you wouldn't necessarily think of if you weren't, if you hadn't done that before, come really valuable, like tech feasibility, like, you know, coming back from business analysis background is thinking about what the business is really looking to achieve and, and how can we translate that into a product we're trying to build and what's the trade-off. Um, where sometimes as a designer, you might not think you should be, you know, thinking about or considering, but it definitely opens up a lot of well good and bad things <laughs> you know you can open up a can of worms even if people don't want to know like they're like why are you thinking like that it's like you know it's probably worth um having that perspective as well i think it opens up good discussions because those conversations you'll either you know maybe have via an email where you're just like why does this person think like this but if you can engage with other people from other teams and kind of you know, build your rationale, get them, have a bit of a back and forth conversation. You can have those difficult conversations that could either help, you know, drive their thinking to be more aligned to, you know, value design in the future. I can see that as being kind of one benefit. Exactly. Yeah, totally agreed. And I really like this um, idea of kind of getting involved and maybe like uh, also stepping on people's toes at times exactly. on in different parts <laughs> of the product. I mean, it may have negative consequences if done wrong. But I think because design is such a central part of like, you know, design is basically like solving your customer's problems, right? And so the way that you design that solution has so many implications on, well, or other things actually have so many implications on the design of the solution, including how it's built, how it's tested, why that particular solution is prioritized against another particular solution, you know, how it brings in revenue. And so all of these things, I think, you know, obviously a designer is not going to be able to <laughs> solve all of those. But I think having an awareness and a participation, active participation in those discussions is super important because ultimately, you know, what gets delivered to customers should be at least partially your responsibility as a designer, I think. Absolutely. So one common problem I see that designers face, and I think if you can tackle this, you are a connoisseur, <laughs> is <laughs> the the balance of um, execution. And uh, I'll, I'll pitch you the scenario. So you're starting a new feature or you're starting a new project and it's going to be from scratch so you've got a lot of runway here it's greenfield it's, it's really good really exciting but quite often in a lot of companies you'll be hampered with some constraints which mean that you can't actually design the full thing you're going to be basically putting out an mvp version mm -hmm. and i think as soon as you get to mvp version you actually throw a lot out the window or actually you've, you've got a choice because you can push for more you can try and you know build design the full version and be like oh but we could do this we could do that and try and win people over mm. use your great negotiation and influencing skills 
or you could just kind of settle in and make sure that you get the, the best MVP. Now, what I think would be the ideal scenario, I know this is tough, it's not always possible, but I have seen designers before that I've worked with do it, and when they do it, it's super powerful, is that they actually design the full long-term vision. So they design the, the exciting, sexy, what this could look like if done right, and using your imagination from understanding the customer problems and implementing that into some great new ideas. But you know they're going to take a while to build. But then what you also do is alongside that provide some quick wins. So you dissect that new design you've you've made and think, okay, this bit could actually be done right now if we changed our current feature or our current workflow. Mm -hmm. And then what you're left with is you've got a roadmap of the future of where you want to get to, this North Star of what this feature could look like. But at the same time, you have actionable quick wins that you can, that developers and, and the team can start working on right away. And yeah, I think that the combination of those two, when, when I've seen, you know, another designer actually implement those, it's just great because you satisfy multiple stakeholders. You've got the engineers that can start working right away. They're not going to be, you know, waiting for some work. You've got your your product manager or product owner or client that's actually excited about the future of it as well because you've got these new uh, shiny designs. So I think overall it's a win-win. I think that's such a good point on what actually makes an extraordinary designer going back to our, our initial topic because it's, I think a lot of people, it can be very easy to focus on making stuff look great and that, that a lot of making stuff feel great, making the experience great, that's awesome. But like DJ mentioned, that sometimes is a long way away and you have mm. to think about what steps mm. in the interim can you do and that's more realistic that gives you another that gives you more chances to learn because ultimately your north star may change after like six or seven iterations based on what customers feedback is through those um through those simple iterations so i think that is that's so key um to have it's very easy to have the final goal but little steps to take you there can be so much more practical I mean, it's interesting you picked up on that point, Saki, because I was actually going <laughs> to pick up on the other point, which is the <laughs> North Star, <laughs> um, in the sense like, I think that, yeah, I think that's an excellent um, point that DJ made in the sense that I think a lot of the times we get given a project and we're like, okay, let's run with it. Let's see what what is the first thing that we can build. And actually, what is really powerful in design is being able to create that excitement and that magic and people being like, okay, mm. I see where, I see what the vision is here. I see how we can solve this problem or create this new opportunity for our product. And that's really powerful because not only does it bring your kind of stakeholders along, but also your engineers are much more likely to push back if they see where we're going to get to versus if you're designing just the MVP and anything that you kind of push in scope, they'll be like, well, this isn't what we agreed upon, right? Whereas if they have an idea of the vision and they're excited about it and brought on board, then it's far easier to then work with them to, to figure out, okay, what's feasible in the first iteration of this? And what can we add um, later on? Bringing people on that journey. <laughs> I mean, I'm actually taking notes because this really hones into what I've been involved in quite recently. Um, I understand that you have to get people to buy into design and one way of doing that is showing something that's exciting, that's sexy, that's new, etc. that's something you're thinking long term. But what I struggle with, and I don't know if other people might, is how do you like balance the quality and time equation 
because fine, you want to show something, you want to show that you've been, you know, extraordinary by thinking about the long-term strategy, how things will hang together, how it might look like if we had this much time uh, versus like, what can we do right now? What's actionable? What what can we bring it to life? Like, I think the real art is is balancing the quality and time. Yeah, I, I think that is a great point. And to challenge myself there, I think that it is very idealistic to to be able to produce both of those, the long-term vision and the quick wins. I think you're definitely going to be get some pushback from from your team, from stakeholders on, on a timeline, for example. You mm-hmm. often get given short timelines to produce these things. And I think that is probably more of an education piece which you would need to embark on to try and challenge them and actually educate them why more time would be useful. It's, it definitely will be an uphill battle. Um, but I think you, the beginning might just be starting yourself. So you might have to put in those extra hours outside of the typical hours to actually produce some of the, the long-term or quick wins initially. And then you could use that to hopefully get them excited and be like, this is what I'd like to do more of, but we will need a little bit more time to actually get it done. And you might not get there at the beginning. It might take a while. For some companies, you, you actually might not get there. It, let's be realistic. <laughs> mm-hmm. But but I think that is the kind of, um, that is what you, the approach you, you should take, I think. So you should try and do it, try and educate them on getting more time. And, you know, I think it's also worth the practice beforehand. Before you request that time, try and practice it before. Because obviously, if you, the problem you have is if you do get the time and then you don't deliver because it's the first time, there Awkward. might be some crash there as well. <laughs> <laughs> One thing I found that's useful is actually, even if you're kind of at a mid-fidelity stage or the idea is quite early in its journey, just kind of exposing that to people can get them quite excited and that can be quite a good reason as to why, you know, you need a bit more time to flesh it out. Just just add a little sprinkle of excitement, but kind of say that, you know, I haven't had enough time to, to develop this, but I'd like to. So we've spoken a lot about what we've seen in other designers. Um, what have been, where have you guys got feedback that was you know, where someone has said, oh, you've really exceeded my expectations as a designer. I mean, all the time. Like, all the come time. On. All, <laughs> if that hasn't day. happened, then this is going to be a very short conversation. <laughs> <laughs> Do we have to blow, blow our own trumpet now? Can I start? <laughs> no, that, that's a tough one. That's a tough one. It's like self-reflection, isn't it? From what I've, you know, been in the game now, like starting off, trying to get settled, understanding Can my Can I role. just say... Can I just say I love that Nord calls design the game. Yeah. I, you know, can we do that more often? I'm built for this game. I was born for this. <laughs> um, no, but I mean, it's good to get feedback. That's what I'm learning. You know, get, get feedback as early as possible and listen to what others, got to, what others have to say about you. But I think the main real feedback I've been getting from coming in from a different perspective is that doing analysis up front, making sure that I've thought about things before I present, making sure that I thought about edge cases and if, what if, else scenarios, proposing more than one solution, not only saying this is the way forward, and also the emotional intelligence that comes with it is knowing your audience and reading the room. I think those skills are things that, you know, stand out and people tend to appreciate and maybe they don't see as often as they should. That's the kind of feedback that I've been seeing. And I think it's good to hear and it's good to um, to know that's appreciated. Yeah, I mean, you said a lot of things there, but I loved um, I love coming up with multiple solutions. I think that's just priceless. Um, and I also love 
like kind of doing the the thinking and the preparation. I think like obviously you shouldn't wait a huge amount of time before you present to stakeholders because you want to yeah. get feedback. But at that the same balance? time, making sure that you, <laughs> yeah, making sure that you show that you didn't just slap some things on a screen, but rather that you've thought about you know there was a process behind your work. Exactly. Yeah, building on that multiple solutions point as well. Um, one thing I've found that kind of works for me is when you can when you can clearly articulate your rationale for those points as well. Like even if it's for a kind of third tier idea, let's say it's like, you know, this is why it could work, but it's here are a bunch of reasons why it's probably not ideal. When you can present those clearly to everyone, I think it it helps build up trust, but it also doesn't make it seem like you're just going with it because you think this is the right reason. If you can explain that to people and get them on board, I've always found that to to get buy-in through different roles in the business, that's a huge thing. Um, and you have to be sure in yourself that this is the right reason to do it. And I think it's almost like a good exercise that if you can build up a good rationale and then you can take that to someone, then you're set. If you, if you kind of are lacking that, you might need to revisit it before you present it or you you pitch it. So you're saying putting too much of your kind of own bias in the designs as opposed to like kind of gathering evidence and rationale from multiple stakeholders. Yeah, multiple stakeholders or, you know, it could be a combination of multiple stakeholders and like design best practices or industry standards and, you know, what you've seen elsewhere that has worked and just kind of presenting that to people rather than you would have done that research yourself. It's just exposing that for everybody else to be in the same kind mm. of frame of mind as you are. Exactly. Because Design is so subjective, so you have to show that you've done your research and you thought about the pros and cons and, you know, how would you get by in otherwise? I mean, yeah, we have the title designer, but, you know, at the end of the day, it's people have such strong opinions. <laughs> you yeah, kind of have to should. make sure that you're... Well, when I present, it's mainly objective, but that might just be me. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Care to explain yourself? <laughs> Yeah, that was real objective when you said that, <laughs> while bragging. Yeah, so building on a very similar point to Saki's, uh, I think it is mine is showing the big picture. So this is something that I actually wasn't good at when I started in design, and I loved. It's the classic of you know you want to get started on UI and not UX, and starting on the UI and building it out and seeing it come to life quickly was super exciting. But what it actually meant is when I started presenting, it was very easy for people to start picking things apart, for people to keep uh, showing me the educators that I hadn't thought about all these things, and so it it led me going into presentations or kind of meetings super excited and coming out the opposite. So obviously, uh, <laughs> uh, I decided to try and change that. And now I do not not the exact opposite. But for me, one of the things I've had complimented before is actually showing the full user journey, the end to end experience. And that can be even for a small feature, like it could be just uh, you're, you're literally entering a, a new input field, a, a new button, something like that. But you think about every single scenario and I'll do a full diagram. I'll, you know, do the happy path, the, the sad path, what actually emotions will customers uh, currently experience? What would they experience in this scenario? So whenever I come into a meeting, uh, people sometimes feel a little bit overwhelmed in that information they're actually absorbing because they're getting to understand the full picture here. And I think that helps you in many ways because one, it helps them realize, you know, when you actually put thought into this, there's a lot of things to think about here and they can actually digest that and understand some of the compromises you have to make. But also I think it means that you start on the front foot by not having to receive questions that you haven't actually thought about and it makes it seem like you were unprepared or 
you hadn't uh, properly done your job as such. So that for me is something that when I received that feedback, I was really happy because I've changed it around, but it has made my life so much easier going forward. Yeah, that's another great point, DJ. I think you've um you've got you've got plenty of those in, in the locker for this episode. Um <laughs> what I wanna like I had a really good example of that happen recently where you the, the team were getting quite granular into this one feature. And I was like, the classic okay, let's just take a step back. And then you actually look at the whole customer journey, you're like, oh my gosh, the amount of things that they have to do before to, they get to this stage. We need to make sure that we consider that because the while we build the feature, you know, sometimes in its granularity, like in that sense as just itself, the customers aren't using it just on its own. They're using it alongside a lot of other stuff. And it can be so useful to keep that in mind when you're talking about the features to, to show that customer journey, like DJ said. I just want to say one thing to DJ because like, I'm actually the exact opposite of what you used to do. Like I maybe spend too much time thinking about the UX and probably not enough time thinking about the UI. So I do it in reverse. <laughs> I'm more like, I need to understand this in and out. I need to draw like journey diagrams and, you know, I think about all the what if scenarios and all the edge cases. And then it's like, oh, where's the time for actual designing, like putting it into Figma. And that's my problem, right? So I think it's the balance, but you know, if you're able to find that hybrid approach, then that's awesome. But I do sometimes feel like I spend a bit too much time thinking about doing the analysis piece and that comedy cut where the BA business analysis slash UX role, I feel like they kind of, you know, converge a bit, but there are fine lines and I'm still trying to figure that one out, but it's interesting. Mm -hmm. So what you're saying is you're just already doing what it took DJ years to do. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. I, that, that, uh, I just, <laughs> you definitely are built for this game, huh? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It really, you guys really didn't struggle to blow your own trumpets. No, my right, guys, uh, I'll see you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh. Well, Two years wasted, mate. <laughs> I have I have an interesting one, or it's like not really. Um, I think maybe slightly different. So, I think one specific piece of feedback um, that I got maybe about a year ago really stuck with me, and it was one from one of our end users, and he basically praised my listening skills and said that you know whenever I speak to Wana, like I always I never feel stupid, even though like I can't really figure out how to do specific tasks in the product, for example, or like when I give ideas and input, I feel like I'm always listened to, and I. I thought that was really interesting um, in the sense that I think as designers, we have, you know, we're kind of expected to listen and to, to empathize because that's, you know, a core part of the design process. But it can be really underappreciated in the sense that when you think about designers, you don't immediately think that, oh, I should probably develop my listening skills as part of my kind of, you know, um, self-development but I think it's just so important. And I think like it can be used, you know, more broadly, I think it can be used as a way to build relationships with your customers. And so in my previous role, I think it was sending in the designer to talk to the business users, for example, was actually seen as a really positive thing because it can be used as a way to improve the relationship between the users and the product uh, with, you know, with you as the designer, as the face of the product, kind of coming in and saying, I'm listening to your input, your ideas are really valuable. And in fact, you know, part of the product is your ideas coming to life. I'm just, I'm just helping you communicate them. And I think giving that you know, sharing that accountability of the product with your customers can be really powerful. And it's something that, you know, it's it's kind of a hard skill because it's not very concrete. But once you pick it up, I think it's so powerful. I just want to say one thing, because I know that Saki said this a while ago in a number of podcasts, maybe, 
creating that judgment free zone um you know when people are talking to you oh, yes i love that the jfz <laughs> can i quote you on this <laughs> but yeah um that's exactly when you were saying that one it just came into my head but yeah I was just going to say, adding adding to that, I've got a similar one. And it's interesting because even now, I don't really consider it a big thing, but it is similar to this. And that's actually having good mediation skills. And it the scenarios where it comes is where you've actually, you're presenting or you're not even presenting, you're just having a meeting about your feature or design or whatever. And you've got different people in that room and they may not always agree. And something that I've been quite good at uh, in my life is actually mediation mainly because i don't like confrontation i'm just a big old coward really <laughs> and and uh um yeah i think like when stakeholders or, or different people have different views they actually have you know very confrontational discussions and just being the person in that room that seems to always find the middle ground or always finds the compromise i think really helps put their trust in me for when I'm making other decisions because I seem to always find a way forward even though they might be you know aggressively disagreeing with each other about the way the way it actually should be done or should be achieved but by just you know taking one approach you know more softly or just saying you know we could do we could do a we could try a first and then do b or we could get a light version of a and b together whatever it is actually when you get that uh softer calmer approach people start to trust you more and, and put more faith in you in other general decisions. And that's what you call emotional intelligence. Thank <laughs> <laughs> you, baby. So, um, so, so far what I've taken from this is that to be a designer, you have to be a great human being, <laughs> very emotionally intelligent. <laughs> be a superhero. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I think basically what, I, what I've taken away is it's a mix of having strong interpersonal skills. So like listening, communicating and empathizing with people, as well as a strong design process. And then also ultimately caring about the product and your customers as much as you care about your kind of flashy design, uh, you know, um, skills. And so just to round up, because you guys are chatterboxes, um, what, <laughs> what are practical tips that you would give, uh, you know, a designer that wants to become extraordinary or be even more extraordinary than what they already are metrics i learned this actually from a head of design for a company that i can't name for certain reasons um but get to know your business's metrics what are your goals for that year what are your growth expectations start to understand a bit of the pnl i think it's so important because you i think you'll just avoid upsetting yourself when the company ends up focusing on different things but you're, if, if you're aware of where, where they want to go and where the money's at, because at the end of the day, you have to be viable as a business. Get educated on that is what I'd say. It's a big thing. Interesting. Interesting. I took, took note of that. But, <laughs> but I, also, I also think what's the way? it's not signing in isolation. It's like being as collaborative as you can be. I think that's kind of implicit, but I think people do forget that. And when I say that, I mean like talk to your dev team, talk to your product managers, talk to... The, the end users mm. like obviously they're your main they're the people that you kind of champion for but don't forget the rest like everything everyone has a seat at the table um and you should incorporate that into your designs and into your way of thinking really yeah i just want to jump on that to uh two times that because <laughs> uh 
collaboration of course and just add on visibility and what i mean by that is actually showcasing your work to others Mm -hmm. so try not to stick to your bubble of even if you're within a team and you might have different people developers product managers whatever all within that one team go beyond that like try and try and reach the entire company obviously you're not going to get everyone but as many people as possible because that gives you more people to collaborate with and again you're going to get more respect and more trust you can clearly see i've got uh, I've got a need to be trusted. <laughs> you're, you're gonna, Trust you're issues gonna get, out here. <laughs> <laughs> Validate me. <laughs> um, but yeah, you're going to get more respect and more trust the, the further you have a reach with your, with your design work. Yeah, definitely. And I think I my tip was also very much in line with what you both just said, but it's just slightly more demanding. <laughs> this is going to sound as if very, very product manager-y, but I'm going to say it anyway. Here we go. Is that you should make... <laughs> You should make everything about the product your job. And I think that actually touches upon all of the things um, the three of you have said. But basically, if you can demonstrate that actually, like, it's not about the product manager's failure if users aren't liking this new feature. It's not the engineer's failure if this um, feature didn't land quite right. It's actually like a shared team accountability, right? And, And that includes you. And so... And going back to Saki's point around business metrics and stuff, you know, you play such a core part in the product development and and ultimately in the business um, strategy. And so I think if you learned to take responsibility and learn as much as possible about the different aspects um, of the product, I think that will make you a genuinely great designer. Right. Miro, or as you might say, Miro, Miro, how do you say it? Anyway, um, I came across this tool. Well, I haven't come across it. I've used it in the past, but not professionally at work yet. And I had to, I had to mock up some quick, like, well, customer journey maps or journey design flows. And I don't like doing that in Figma. So I defaulted to Miro, Miro, whatever you want to call it. And I must say it was quite a pleasant experience. Um, and I kind of want to hear what you guys think about it as well. Yeah, I really like the tool, actually. I think it's almost like a design tool for non-designers. Uh, one of the things I found mm. before with these kind of workflow tools and things like that is they can be quite fiddly, but Myra has such a good array of templates and also the kind of drag and drop elements in there as well. Like, it's so easy. It feels like I'm in the office putting post-it notes up when I create a board with post-its on Myra. It's, it's super slick and very easy. Yeah, I must say the onboarding experience is on point. Um, you know, you basically get started right from the get-go. Open it, open up the library of templates, see a visual of what you're trying to get and a one-liner. And it's like you start using it and it basically doesn't take long for you to get value out of it, which I think is instrumental, really. Yeah, totally agree. I think like the templates are a very core part of the both of the onboarding experience and of the use of it in general. I think like they've basically just realized how, you know, they've acknowledged how much of a daunting experience it can be to start with a completely blank uh, canvas. And so, you know, that element of, of getting started quickly is super valuable. What I love about it and what inspires me is the interactions. I find the responsiveness of it to be really special, especially, you know, for uh, even if you use the browser, like it's more responsive than some like native apps installed on my Mac, which is crazy. Mm. So you can tell that they focused in on um, on that interaction aspect. 
And I think for me, the second thing is it's really interesting the types of features that they've decided to build. And I think the way they're building their features just indicates their very clear understanding of users in the sense that they haven't decided to build, you know, like in terms of shapes, for example, or things that you can draw, it's relatively limited. So they haven't expanded in that, but they've expanded in features like scanning uh, physical post-its and then trying to interpret that. They've uh, focused in on trying to copy things from a spreadsheet and then it automatically turns it into a set of different, like each cell is a different post-it. And so it's interesting that they haven't focused on like expanding like the kind of drawing and like... uh, creating content capabilities, but more on supporting people's workflows of bringing content into Miro from physical spaces, which, you know, that's basically where they're playing at because they're a virtual whiteboard, but they've really understood the needs of people in that space, I think. Yeah, I think it's it's helped to replace the um, the UX workflow really well. Like once you uncover the power tools, like you can vote and there's also timers. It's almost like Obviously, it's perfect timing with the way that COVID's come through and making everything digital. Like you can have workshops and sessions in Miro as if it were like a real, real like workshop that you'd have in person with some of the with some of the features that you have. I only saw those features like today. I didn't see them last week. Are they that new? Or I just didn't realize that they were there. <laughs> um, the voting and the timer thing. It's pretty cool additions. Yeah, I think they're churning out features like there's no tomorrow, especially in these times, right? Makes sense. They're probably growing super fast. And that was actually the point that I was going to make, because what impressed me with Miro is actually the the depth they've gone into for, you know, these certain use cases, but also the breadth, like the templates that they've got, the, the number they have and how they actually cater to many different types of users. Because I think what's interesting is when you, you have that, you know, word of mouth effect, that works when you're in a niche and it's like you have a designer using a tool and another designer sees that designer using it. It's like, oh, that's cool. Great. Let's use that. But what Myro also does is whether it's a designer or a product manager or a business person, because they've got a business model canvas, what it, they've got quite a few different scenarios. So if they're targeting like an entire team mm. or an entire selection of people, mm. which is something that you normally aren't advised to do because you normally have to you know you have to target in your niche. But I think this is quite a general tool that when you can have those slightly different templates and get everyone on board, it makes that word of mouth spread so quickly. And it's yeah, it's just great. Is there anything that we don't like about it? I was just about to say that. I think not to be, you know, unpopular opinions, but um, I actually don't think that the experience outside of a board is amazing. I think I find it even now, I've been using Myra for quite a while. Even now, I find it somewhat confusing switching between different teams and then different, like, I think they're called projects or something. So basically, you Mm. have like groupings of boards into projects. And like, for example, at my company, like people still haven't gotten used to that. So everyone just creates boards. And so when you go to the public page, there's just everyone's boards on there. So I think they haven't really focused in on the on that experience of like creating, organizing boards. But at the same time, you know, I fully understand because they've really honed in on the experience of creating content once you're inside a board. So I, I kind of forgive them for that. How nice of you, Anna. <laughs> yeah, search, searching is really weird. Searching's really weird on it, and I've actually just ended up starring all my boards that I create. Mm. One one good point I would say is, which is actually different to all of this, and it's not so designer related, but when we touched on things, you know, designers understanding the full spectrum of what's going on in your company, the actual business model is quite good. 
in terms of how they're getting people to go from uh, being a standard user to a premium user. Uh, because they actually allow you to use the full suite of the application, but only for a selection of boards. Mm-hmm. And all your, all your, um, if you go over that limit, then you actually can't get the, you can't use the board essentially. Or you can, I think it's only read only. But it's a really good way to actually, you know, it's it's kind of replacing that trial. You know, you have a thirty day free trial, or you can use a so you can use something for a, until you reach a number a limit. But it allows you to really get the full benefit from it without taking too much away and i think the actual mm. design of that feature as well is done quite nice as well because at each stage you're reminded you know you can get the full full use of this but you're going to go over your limit so yeah i love that point i think they've really kind of nailed the whole gaining goodwill from your users from day one even from your like free users because i think like you you have a chance to fall in love with Miro. And then even if you can't afford to pay or your company doesn't want to pay for the account, you still gain full access to everything. So you still fall in love with the tool, right? And and you get that user buy-in um, and those kind of, you know, you <laughs> develop that fan base uh, in free users, which will eventually obviously develop in people being kind of um, dedicated to your product. Your product becomes so much stickier and it'll be very, much easier to then monetize later on, right? That's a really good point, Wana. That's a really good point. Okay, well, I think we can end on that. (laughs) That's a chicken fillet wrap from us at Zero to Design. We hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. If you'd like to join in on the fun and have some topics in mind, then feel free to get in touch at Zero to Design on Instagram or Twitter. Bye now from Noor, Wana, DJ and Zaki.